Welcome, everyone. I'm Kevin Miller, and this is The Ziggler Show, inspired by the grandfather of inspiration himself, Zig Ziggler. Our focus here is you and your personal development. The way to have more tomorrow is to become more today. So we bring you the best of today's world influencers and their messages and discover how we can all apply new and classic methodologies of personal growth to our lives. With this episode, Wisdom is our focus. Wisdom, it's defined as the quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. And I find it actually falls in that sequential order. You have an experience, you gain knowledge from which you utilize good judgment, or let's say you can, if you pay attention. Uh, that's the crux of this show with wise guy, Guy Kawasaki. And this is actually my second time to have Guy on the show. And his new book is called Wise Guy. It's a compilation of life lessons. A guy is an unprecedented influencer, which accounts for the half million people who follow him on Facebook and almost one and a half million on Twitter. He's chief evangelist of Canva, an online graphic design tool and brand ambassador for Mercedes-Benz. He was the chief evangelist of Apple, and his stories of working with Steve Jobs and lessons learned are just intriguing and compelling. Uh, he's a best-selling author of multiple books, such as The Art of the Start and Enchantment. But in this book, he walks through much of his life and career and literally shares so many great stories and then what lessons he learned from them that you'll find are incredibly applicable to all of us, of course. Uh, as you'll hear, it just really caused me to consider the many events that have and are always happening happening in my life and ask, am I learning lessons from them or just letting them pass by? And honestly, we hit some really poignant issues in this show. We laughed a lot too. He's just a uh, guy's just a total joy to be with and learn from. He's as humble and authentic as anyone I've ever met. Uh, you're going to learn and I think thoroughly enjoy this show. I found myself just wanting to underline line after line and point after point of these lessons that he learned. You can find Guy's book, Wise Guy, wherever you buy your books, of course. Hey, quick thanks again, as I keep doing to all you who are listening to the Ziegler show. Uh, thanks for tuning into the message of inspiring your true performance from this legacy from Zig Ziegler and taking us to the 40 million download mark. That's a big mark in podcasting. Uh, Zig's greatest desire was for all of us to continue on his devotion of positive personal growth. And you obviously are. So I'll bring you Guy Kawasaki right after I share some great products and services from our show sponsors. You know, I, I interviewed you last. It's only been a year and a half ago that I interviewed you. And then I got to sit with you for a little bit at Social Media Marketing World a couple, like a month later or so. Uh, and then lo and behold, what was it, a couple months ago, I get, uh, I get a text from Guy Kawasaki. I felt so honored. Uh, <laughs> although I had no idea what you're talking about because it was a butt dial. So you're, we're here together today. Thanks to a divine butt dial. I'm, I'm grateful. All right. Well, you know, whatever it it's takes. better, to, it's better to be lucky than smart. <laughs> well, and so I, uh, you know, I'm going to hit right on that in your, from your book, you give that, but you know, I did want to say guy that when I looked at the book, and, yeah. it, you know, it's kind of a compilation. I, at first I thought, hey, I don't know, if there, is there a specific message here? And then as I got into it, I just couldn't put it down. I kept reading it. <laughs> and I, I know it's not an autobiography. So I got that. I got it loud and clear. Yeah. However, Zig Ziglar, you know, with all yeah. his best-selling books, the one I really got the most out of was his autobiography because 
I got to hear the real story lessons within the context of his life. And it Mm -hmm. stuck with me so strongly. And honestly, it's what I got from your book. And as I read it, I just thought, thanks for writing the book. Ah, thank you. You flatter me. Thank you. Well, you know, lesson, and it's also interesting lessons from a life. And I mean, I'm looking at you, your life's not done yet. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> this, this can't I, be a capstone. As, as someone once said, I forget who, maybe it was Barack Obama. Uh, I have more yesterdays than I have tomorrows. Okay. Okay. Granted, <laughs> granted. I'm sure there's still good things in the works though. I hope. Oh, I hope too. I hope too. Well, so a couple things on here. Um, I recently interviewed a guy named David Melcher. He wrote a book called Game Time Decision Making. Mm-hmm. And he said something that stuck out there as he was talking about lessons. And I mean, again, that, it's a, you know, the, the tagline of your book. And he said, uh, lessons are miracles when learned. But if a lesson keeps happening, you haven't learned it yet. <laughs> yeah, re- I agree. Re- reading your stories and the lessons you learned, honestly, it gave me pause, guy, to consider my own life and how many events and experiences have transpired? And I started thinking, have I, did I learn from them, though? You seem, every story, it seems that the events happen and you had this realization of a lesson. And I uh, wonder, did you, well, uh, I'm going to ask, did you adjust quickly or is this in hindsight? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> listen, uh, first of all, the stories that are in the book are the ones that have a piece of wisdom or lesson attached to it. So there are many stories that didn't make the cut because there was nothing to learn. And this is 63 years of, of stories. So you would think in 63 years, I would, you know, get at least a couple hundred lessons. So I, I (laughs) (laughs) don't believe that, you know, I'm this really wise guy, no pun intended, who has learned all these lessons. And as soon as it happened, I figured it out what it meant, right? So, for yeah. example, um, it took me 20 years to realize that the best teachers are the hardest ones. Yeah. I didn't learn that the day after high school graduation, believe me. Yeah. Well, it, but it did. It did really bring me, I mean, this is you know, authentically to thinking about the things in my life, whether they're hard, mm-hmm. whether they're cumbersome, even whether they're excited, am I learning from? If I step back and go, okay, what can I learn I mean, in my, in my morning devotions, I found myself the, the, just looking at the day before now and going, okay, what, what happened? Should I have learned something from <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah. Not every day is a learning day. Not every experience is a learning experience. But uh, sometimes I look at that with my kids and I can make everything a learning experience. But am I doing it? I, so you, you gave me a, a good, uh, a lot of introspection, honestly. Okay, good. I uh, at least make different mistakes from the ones I made. Yeah. Well, and you talked about that in the book. I mean, I communicate best when I write. And for a few years now, when I have thoughts from my kids, I write them out and I have a whole Google Docs folder of of writings that I give to them. And then we can talk about them. And, uh, you know, with that in mind, I mean, I want what what inspired the book? What was the catalyst for you thinking I'm going to write a compilation on these lessons? Uh, I got a big royalty. Okay, that's valid. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I, I think that I just I, I came to a conclusion that you know, three quarters of my life or whatever is over and I've learned a lot why not pass these lessons on if you know, no one else than my kids but also a bigger population yeah. and I, I want to make it clear that 
I'm not Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela or you know, Mother Teresa. I don't have that kind of amazing, you know, made-for-movie story. Uh, on the other hand, I think more people can relate to my stories than Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, and Nelson Mandela. Yeah. So I have very tactical and practical things, um, but and this will never be made into a movie. Okay, I promise you. Well, but the book, I, I did give it to pretty quick, uh, handed it off to one of my older kids because of that, because it's yeah. so palatable, I guess. Yeah, it's real world stuff. It's not, uh, it's not something that we can't, I think, all attest to, <laughs> but it did, it did kind of bring back that perspective of being a learner and you yeah. do seem like a learner. Yeah. Uh, I, I think if you're not learning, you're dying. So, yeah. um, <laughs> or or dead well and i was gonna you know I, I i and i did i read it cover to cover at the end of it your your kids uh i don't know if it was all of them but a couple of them wrote yeah. some things in there and you know again my own context of, of my own kids right now and lessons that i'm wanting to impart to them and i thought i wonder right now is there a lesson right now you wish one of your kids you want one of your kids to get anything uh-huh. coming on and i i think that that's true for a parent every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just some some days are more more uh, fertile than others. Let's say you start the book off with a story, the story of your family's immigration to America yep. from Japan yep. to Hawaii, and I it got me thinking about the importance of personal history, our family and ancestry overall. Yep. It seems like. So I'm 48, and through my lifetime, it, it was never a big focus. And I don't really think it was just my family. I think culturally here in America, it, it, I wonder if we left that a little bit. And now it's interesting. We've got companies like 23andMe, Ancestry.com that came along. And I'm wondering, uh, is there a revival in people? I don't know. I don't know if they're wanting to know the value of their history or if they're clambering for something because they don't feel attached. Well, it could also be that now the technology exists, right? Okay. So, you know, I don't know. In 1900, you couldn't exactly compile a Google Doc. True. <laughs> and, and you also, I don't know how publishing exactly worked in 1900, but certainly there was no such thing as self-publishing and put it on Amazon. So it may be that, you know, the, the, the desire to do what you mentioned has been consistent. It's just now possible for more people to do it. Even in books though. I mean, I'm, I'm usually talking to somebody every week on a book and reading yours brought me to thinking of how seldom I hear that background story from people. They want to talk about, and I think I'm, no, I know I'm the same way. I tend to want to talk about the point. Here's what I learned. Here's the lesson. Here's the point. Let's talk about that without giving the background and the context. And so again, I was brought to you start off with that to give us that initial context. I think you even say a lot of things in here won't make sense unless you know (laughs) the context. Well, well, one of my uh, high sites in life is that, you know, a story is so much more effective than a simple order or declaration, right? Yeah. So, um, and so stories are the most powerful way to communicate. And when I speak, I, I do nothing but tell stories. And, and part of it is because as a venture capitalist, I was just numb 
to founders saying, well, I have a patent pending company paradigm shifting enterprise class scalable product. Yeah. Like every, everybody says that, right? Yeah. And so like after a while, you're saying they're all full of it. So, you know, tell me a story why you created the company. I mean, make it up if you have to, but just don't use all the adjectives in your, you know, your vocabulary. So how do you take that? So right here, our audience has a big majority of Mm -hmm. business owners, whether they've got 100 employees or whether that's a solopreneur or somebody with a side gig. Mm -hmm. And I know I I read that in here. I think you said stories are more more valuable than adjectives. Is that Mm -hmm. I think think it was? And okay, so we all have half the people, I don't know, 75% of people have a website here. They have something that they're pitching. And they're probably, Mm -hmm. like I tend to, they're hitting with, you know, the bullet points, the value, the merit, hopefully they're talking about the result that the person gets, but mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not a natural storyteller. I'm, I'm a bullet point guy, um, admittedly. And yet I know the value of story. You're totally right. What's the, you know, what's a, what's the first, uh, take action step that we can all turn back at our businesses and see if we're getting it right. And, and, and reference well, the story. Sure. Well, a very good test is for, you know, you to go up to a random employee and say, so what's the story of our company? Hmm. And if they say, uh, you know, I have no idea, um, that could be a problem. I think people gravitate towards stories for the genesis of a company or a product that, you know, it, it goes beyond, oh, so really, you know, basically you just wanted to do this to make money. And you say, no, it's because, you know, my buddy and I were in our garage in Cupertino and the only place we could use a computer was if we worked for Atari or HP or we went to Stanford or we worked for NASA. And so we thought, well, why couldn't cheapers be why couldn't cheapers? Why couldn't computers be cheaper, smaller, easier to use? So we created Apple. Yeah. That's a lot more compelling story. Okay, I get that. So venture capital. Well, uh, two questions. So venture yeah. capital. When you're listening, you want a story because it's just more interesting. But at the heart of it, what do you what do you want to what are you looking for? Are you looking for the story of the business? Are you looking for the heart of the founders? What's the thing that you're trying to get a beat on? Yeah. Uh, first of all, in a rare moment of humility, let me admit that I'm not exactly proven as a successful venture capitalist. So <laughs> you know, you may yeah. not want this advice. Okay. But I, I think. True. If you could get to ask a venture capitalist and if you could get them to answer honestly, um, they would basically say that they want to invest in no-brainers that have already been proven. So that's kind of a duh-ism, right? But what I'm saying is that you know the best pitch for a venture capitalist is to say, oh, my buddy and I, we started this company – we self-funded it. You know, we, we stole computing time from our university. We hosted it in our garage, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And lo and behold, 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000 people are now signing up per day. We're almost at break even. Uh, and we just need capital for expansion as opposed to prototype. That's the story every venture capitalist wants to hear because – yeah, nobody comes in and says, we don't know what the hell we're doing or if anybody will ever buy what we're selling. Yeah. And so everybody tells this, this adjective field, patent pending, curve jumping, paradigm shifting thing. So if you could just come in and say, listen, you know, um, 
far be it from me to explain. And, you know, I'm as surprised as anybody, but my God, people are buying our stuff. And so we need capital. That's the story. Um, well, that takes that away the napkin idea that gets funded. So it's yeah, just. Yeah, I, I think that's passe these days okay. that, you know, maybe, maybe if, if you're Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or something, you know, you can go to some restaurant and whip out the napkin and say, okay, so now I'm going to make, I don't know, I'm going to bore holes underneath cities or I'm going to fly Mars or I'm going to create usable, reusable rockets or I'm going to create an electric car. If you're Elon Musk, back of envelope, back of napkin, sure. you can do that. But that's because everybody thinks Elon Musk and Steve Jobs are proven. Yeah. If you're two guys in a garage, two gals in a garage, a guy and a gal in a garage, undergraduates, you know, whatever, um, you don't have that luxury. It's much better for you to show up with something that's the, that the dogs are already eating. You're listening to The Ziggler Show and my discussion with wise guy, Guy Kawasaki. We just hit on investors talking about that. My next question is regarding story and how we tell a story. How can we tell a story and the mere glance we may get on our website to hook the right people? A guy has two theories to offer us how to quickly and deftly tell the what and the how. So you're going to hear that next. Uh, we'll get that right to you right after we thank our great show sponsors. So back to the story. So yeah. let's take it. So venture capital, at least you get, you know, a business plan or, or your famous, you know, 10 page pitch deck with the 34 yeah. uh, size font to tell a little bit of the story. But now we have that. And I, I see this every day in my own struggle, my own efforts uh, yeah. and in other people's where they've got, you know, five second, they got a screenshot and they're going, how do I tell the story for my business? Right off the bat, how do I hook somebody with even getting into the story? Um, wait, so what is five seconds now? Oh, just that first look at a website or, you know, whether it's on the desktop or on a screen, when you bring them to your website, you did the big launch, oh, you're bringing I them see, there. I yeah. Um, I, I think that there's sort of two theories. One is to show a what, i.e., this is the end result of my product or service. The other is to show the how, at, that is, look how easy and intuitive and simple it is to create this great thing. And it's either one of those two. So I'm chief evangelist of Canva. Yep. And Canva is an online graphics design service. So when I talk about Canva, I talk about the how because, you know, using any number of graphics products, including those from Adobe that you have to rent or buy and spend months learning. At the end of the day, a lot of companies can create, create beautiful graphics. Okay. The, the how is the key for Canva. So, you know, this is our selection of hundreds of templates. And within the templates, there are hundreds of specific designs for each template. So when, you know, under a minute, you could create a perfect Instagram post. You could create that same perfect Instagram post in Photoshop. It would just take you, you know, whatever, $50 a month yeah. and four, four weeks. So I think it's the how um, as opposed to the what. Okay. And you, you know, you talked about being uh, an evangelist for, uh, for Canva. And, yeah. and folks, show 555 at the Ziggler Show, that's where we did. And that was, that's what we talked about is the 
aspect of sales, of being an evangelist, of being an ambassador. So go listen to that. I'm not going to get into that in this show, but it's, it was a brilliant show. I really encourage you to, to go look into that. But, you know, it's speaking back to venture capital, the two, weren't there two founders of Canva? And they were kind of that story. They were clawing that thing, putting it together and had people using it. And that's when they came and met you, I think. And it took them years to raise venture capital. Um, So, you know, I'll give you an example. There are two ways to pitch Canva, right? So one way is to say, well, there are, I don't even know what the number is. There are 7 billion on computer, people on computers and on the internet today. And so some significant portion, let's just say 1% of those 7 billion people need to create graphics. And let's say they need to create, you know, one graphic a day. So you take those two numbers and you multiply it and, you know, you come up with billions of images every year. And then you say, well, so if we just got 1% of that 1%, imagine how big you'll be. So, you know, that's kind of the typical take a really big number, take a small percentage and say, how hard could that be? The problem is every entrepreneur says that, you know, 300 million Americans, one in four owns a dog, 75 million dogs. Each dog eats two cans of dog food per day, 150 million cans of dog food per day. If I got 1% market share, I'd sell one and a half million cans of dog food per day. Everybody's pitch sounds like that. So I think a a much better, more relatable story is, you know, my co-founder and I, we were teaching undergraduates graphics in Western Australia. We saw how hard it was for kids to understand Illustrator and Photoshop. So we decided there must be a better way. And we created Canva. I think that's a much better Sorry. Okay. Well, it's, and we should all have that unless again, we come back to, Oh, the reason we did this well, was just to make a buck. Can I give you another piece of advice? Please. Since you mentioned your, uh, your, your listenership. I think all of marketing boils down to a very simple two by two matrix. So on the vertical axis, we have the degree of differentiation. So if you're high, it means you're pretty unique. Nobody else does what you do on the horizontal axis we have value so if you're far off to the right it means you're very valuable and and i think all of marketing boils down to creating and communicating that you are and i don't mean this in terms of drugs or politics but that you are high and to the right Hmm. so you have a unique product that's valuable you know when ipod first came out it was the only way mere humans could operate a digital music device that had a wide selection of music that operated legally and inexpensively, 99 cents per song. So it was unique and valuable. So no matter if you have a restaurant, if you have a dry cleaner, if you have the next Google, if you have the next home construction, you know, whatever, real estate firm, all of your mind should be thinking, how do I make my company unique and valuable? And it could be by price, product, selection. I don't know what. But if you're not unique and valuable, you will always have to compete on price. What do you think about – I know there's lots of debates on, on the term brand these days. It seems like I hear yeah. more negative term, you know, negative baggage around it. But, but still, there are some that it feels hard in certain categories for them not to feel equal. It feels like a commodity almost. And you wonder if somebody's winning the brand war. They're doing better marketing. They're making a better story, I guess. I mean, you watch the Super Bowl these days. You don't hear anything about what the thing does or how it does it. It's just an image. And obviously, they think it sells. I don't know if it really does, but apparently. I don't know either. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I think ultimately consumers create your brand. So, you know, you may want to position yourself one way, but ultimately consumers will decide what you are. Right. And, and I also think that is made because of your product or service. So, and, and you know, lots of, lots of companies want to be multiple or multifaceted, right? So, you know, Volvo wants to be sexy and safe. Yeah. And Ferrari wants to be sexy. I don't know if they want to be safe. But, you know, okay. So, so the, the point is that, you know what, one should be so lucky in a market, you are the clear association with a particularly good quality. So Volvo equals safety. Hallelujah, man. I'd be happy. <laughs> um, now, if, if you can make Volvo safety and beauty, more power to you. Yeah, but you know you can't make your brand stand for safety, beauty, inexpensiveness. Uh, what else? You know, like you can't pick five things. Um, yeah, Apple will never be known as the enterprise software company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just the way it is. I mean, uh, you'd be happy with one thing, be ecstatic with two. Okay, how about Mercedes as the evangelist for Mercedes or ambassador for Mercedes. What's uh-huh. their, so where do they fall in that? Where do you want uh, them to fall? I think Mercedes should stand for um, engineering. Okay. It's, it's an engineering-driven company, uh, just like Apple, frankly. And, uh, you know, I, I think Apple and Mercedes lives and dies. When it makes great products, great cars, great phones, great computers, it does well. When it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, it's kind of that simple. What are you driving right now? I am driving an S63. This is the S-Class uh, AMG version. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, and I, I read a lot about your love of cars. I wanted to know that. And, uh, okay, so if you can't, is this a fair question? If you can't drive a Mercedes, you're banned from it. What's your next pick as a car guy? Honda. Honda, really? <laughs> you, you thought I was going to say McLaren or Lamborghini. I, I or was. Right? You got pictures of these yeah, fancy yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's, why? Uh, because... Well, I have a family of six, yeah. and uh, five of the six of us surf. And so, you know, I have the only S63 in America with surfboard racks on it. <laughs> if, if I could not buy a Mercedes, I think I might just go out and buy a Honda Odyssey. Okay. All right. Now, I did see it was on your Twitter, I think, uh, recently, uh, Mercedes is coming out with an electric uh, van. Yeah. That's, yeah, and I have not yet established whether that's coming to America, but then, you know, then I'll go buy that. So, yeah. But but you said the premise was I could not buy I, Mercedes. I know, I know, I know it was. I was. I, want, <laughs> I wanted to see it. And I was not expecting Honda uh, <laughs> at all. I, I live at 9,200 feet up in the Rocky Mountains. You can't get yeah. to our house a lot of the year without four-wheel drive. And I have uh, nine kids and two grandkids. So we have You're a busy boy. I'm a busy boy. I have a suburban, uh, four wheel drive suburban that seat is, yeah. seats eight. But then when we have everybody, uh, I've got a passenger van, an all wheel drive passenger van as well. And, uh, but I've, I've been, I'm, I'm so tired of old big trucks and, and I've been looking how at how many, how many uh, seats does the van have? 11, 11. Oh, oh, this is not your usual Honda Odyssey. This is the kind that hurts drives around the airport car. Uh, it's a, it's a Chevy express all wheel drive, that, oh, but they, oh. they only come with two seats with their all wheel drive. And I put another one in the back 
uh, to uh, fit it. So I had to retro. It was either that or get some crazy four by four, you know, uh, made van that that I don't know. It was it was nuts. I want something cool. I, I saw the Mercedes Jeep. Get a Sprinter. I sh- that would be good. Well, all wheel drive. Did they make them all wheel drive? So that's, oh, that I don't know. That's the thing. I mean, I've got all t- all terrain treads. Well, yeah. well, global warming. Pretty soon, you won't need all. That's drive. true. That's true. That'll solve everything <laughs> up here. Up here in the mountains. Yeah. All right. You I, might have beach. You might have beachfront property. Yeah. Well, that would be. We're the furthest from that right now. But uh, <laughs> uh, you, you know, you going back to the aspect of being a learner. I mean, just the spirit mm-hmm. of the book, which I so appreciated. Too. You come back to these. Uh, great truths and a lot about just being teachable is what I saw from you. And in that there seems to be, there has to be so much humility that others have value to offer. You brought that up time and time again, again, whether it was right there in the moment or whether it was 20 years yeah. afterwards of going, okay, I, I, I have something to learn from that people, that person. And it wasn't uh, somebody on deck at a stage in front of 50 million or 50,000 yeah. people, it might've been yeah, that teacher or that one person at your job that you were well, humble enough to learn from. I uh, mean, it could be someone flipping hamburgers. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I used to, I used to have this attitude that, you know, I am, you know, such and such socioeconomic strata. So this person who's in a lower strata, what could I possibly learn from that person? Right. Or, yeah, somehow having this kind of Silicon Valley centric air of superiority, and after a while, you know, I figured out. So I'll give you an example. So, so right now, sometimes I go surfing, and I just started surfing, and let's just say I'm beginner slash intermediate, right? Yep. And so now I may be out there surfing, and the guy or gal next to me could be a plumber let's say, right? And so, you know, you figure like, oh, I'm superior to a plumber. I work for Apple. I went to Stanford, blah, blah, blah. Well, this person is just such a great surfer, could teach me how to surf better. Mm -hmm. So am I better than that person in total? No. I mean, you know, it it depends on what you value. And who am I to say that I'm superior or happier than a plumber who can out-surf the hell out of me? So I, I no longer believe that, you know, somebody on Sand Hill at a venture capital firm is inherently smarter or superior to anybody else. That is it's a fallacy. Well, so I, you know, your book, you talk so much about your experience at Apple and you talk about Steve jobs a, a lot mm-hmm. in there. And so we're talking about being teachable, having mm-hmm. humility, just like you talked about there. And then on the other side, we have the story of Steve jobs who does not seem that way, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I would not, yeah. Yeah. Well, but, but so there's a crux. So if you've got somebody who's trying to learn right now and they're going, okay, do I go over here and be teachable? Or do I go over here well, and be staunch well, on my idea, my opinion? Okay. So several ways to answer this. First okay. of all, there is no single path to success. Sure, sure, sure. So maybe you'll be Steve Jobs or maybe you'll be someone who's malleable and teachable. That's one answer I have for you. The second answer I have for you is that the probability that you are Steve Jobs or Elon Musk is roughly point oh 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 one percent. So I would not be banking on the fact that you're the next Steve Jobs and you should tailor your behavior towards his model. 
Well, um, that's a relief for me because my wife would get rid of me in a heartbeat anyway. So. <laughs> Well, that, that's another piece of wisdom. I mean, if in doubt, ask your wife. Yeah, well, we're, we're set there. We're set there. <laughs> you know, I, and I, I know you wrote this to everybody, and you talk about your kids a lot in it, and I just kept thinking. Again, my, I told you I've been writing stuff to my kids, so I kept yeah. uh, relating I, I, to them. I, I love that idea. I wish – well, I, in a sense – this whole book is written too much. No, I, I, I agree. There, there was a book written a long time ago, and it was like a, it was a little – like a little bathroom book, like life's lessons that some guy wrote to his kid, just these one yeah. line, or I, I remembered it always impacted me, but really cool. Well, well, in that though, and I do, I want my kids to my older kids to dig into your book and talk about it some, and you talk in there a lot about formal education. Um, you had such a great experience at Stanford. It looks like your kids have gone, at least the college age ones have all gone to college so far. Yes. Um, yes. So, Along with that, too, again, culture right now, we have a lot of uh, a lot of negative feedback towards college, towards debt, towards that. And I see, again, kids, we got the millennials now, really waffling. And I've had a lot of discussions with my kids. Do They know dad is an entrepreneur. I never did go to school. I, was, I, I grew up in an entrepreneurial home. It's all I ever knew. I went into business, and that's where I was, so I never did so, that. So you never went to college? Never stepped foot in it. Yeah, really? I, I didn't even go to my high school graduation. Um, I was, uh, I was uh, working and having fun and racing. Uh-huh. I was a professional cyclist, and I was off and traveling around the world and loved it. So it's, it's, it wasn't an anti-college. I just, I don't know. I just never saw that. But then, uh, you see people like you who really espoused that and yeah. it seems like there's just a lot, there's always a lot of talk about it, but it seems like we're reaching somewhat of a crescendo well, on college. That's the number one. You probably saw the number one Ted talk is, uh, sir Robinson. What's his name? Yeah. Ken. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, uh, and what do he, he say? Well, he's pretty harsh against formal education. Uh, for really? sure. Yeah. Uh, Anyways, uh, just, just that you obviously had a great experience. You really like it, but wanted your perspective on that. Yeah. So, um, I, I, I would say that going to college is not necessary nor sufficient for success, mm-hmm. but, uh, I think that, you know, at 18 years old, going to college, getting away from home, being out on your own, and meeting people that, you know, if you just stayed at home, you might not meet. Sure. Now, for example, so I was raised in Honolulu, Hawaii. Let's suppose I never went to college. Or, or even if I stayed in Hawaii and went to college. And my horizons would be definitely smaller. So, you know, I, I came from Honolulu, and I landed in SFO, and I went to the Stanford campus, and I thought the freaking waters had parted. Like, my God, you know, this is not some place you can drive around in two hours. And people don't want to simply work in tourism or agriculture or government. You know, they create Hewlett Packard. They create, you know, National Semiconductor. I mean, they're all driving Maseratis and Ferraris and Porsches. Um, so, you know, materialistic as that may sound, I saw that. I said, man, I got to get a piece of this action. Yeah. So if I had stayed in Hawaii, I don't know if my horizons, as simplistic <laughs> and materialistic as I just described, would be what they are. Yeah. Yeah. You, 
Yeah, I, I do have an admission. The one, I, if I give this kid this to my book, uh, the book yeah. to my kids, yeah. I may take out page forty-four. In there, you talk about the speech you give to the graduating classes. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And, and one, one of the points: live off your parents as long as possible. Son of a gun. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm pulling that page well, out, man. Well, that's because I don't have nine kids. So. Yeah, well, granted. Uh, but granted. my my point there was that. Um, yeah, maybe it's because I'm Asian, but I see a lot of kids, they're trying to rush through college, you know, get through it as fast as possible so they can go, what, work for Goldman Sachs or work for McKinsey or I don't know what. And it seems to me that college is the last time in your life where you are without mortgage, without payments, without kids you should try to stretch that out as long as you can yeah. because you know <laughs> it ain't going to happen again. And so I look back and I say, boy, you know, I-, I wanted to graduate quickly, right? Take as many units, go to summer school, all that kind of stuff. And I regret that. I-, I Stanford had a bunch of overseas campuses all over the world. I never did any of that. So would I be a better person today if I had gone Stanford overseas campus? Absolutely. Yeah. My horizons would be even broader than they are. You're going again, just to the spirit of the book. You so often come back to, well, you mentioned it, you joked about a minute ago, luck, and you do talk about that, but I, yeah. you know, I, I look at it and in the context of, of your story and in your stories, it was the definition that I like most when preparation meets opportunity. And mm-hmm. it seems like that happened. You did not just stumble into anything with, with nothing at all to offer. Um, but go ahead. yes, uh, I, I did not, but I, I will say that, um, it seems to me that luck favors the people who are willing to grind it out. Number one. Okay. And uh, the reason why I have such an emphasis on luck is not because I want people to have a life strategy of, Oh, I'll just get lucky because, <laughs> because okay. a strategy of getting lucky is not actionable, right? That's like saying, I use a, uh, a joke in the book that, you know, you have to stand by the side of a river a long time before a roast duck will fly into your mouth. <laughs> so what, what I'm saying is that the, the reason why I emphasize luck is that I think a lot of people take themselves too seriously. That, that you know, let, let's say that, I don't know, you know, you, you just happen to be in the right dorm and you happen to be rooming with the right person and that person starts the next google and now you're 21 and you're worth 500 million dollars right and you think you caused that you didn't cause that you were just lucky yeah so i think it's a it's a statement of you know don't take yourself so seriously um because just like you can learn from everybody you know, when you're driving around in your car and, you know, you're living in your, like, high life, high status, and the, the difference between you and someone homeless is not that much. Yeah. You know, it's where you were born, how you were born, what happened, a lot of that, you had nothing to do with, man. Don't think that you earned all that. Sounds like that line between, what do they say, brilliance and insanity is very fine line. <laughs> you know, I, I have a nine-year-old son, and this last week he asked me, the whole family sitting around, he says, Dad, do you think you ever win the lottery? And I said, yeah. no, I won't, buddy. And he just, well, why couldn't you? He, I think he thought I was like limiting myself. Why couldn't you? Why don't you think you could? It's because I didn't buy a ticket. But, and, yeah. but, but you know what? Um, 
I would make the case, Kevin, that if you have nine children that you enjoy and they enjoy you and you have, you know, like that and you have your health and all that, you did hit the law. I did hit the good word. Right? I did. I have. I mean, I, I, what, what, I mean, okay, so we're not billionaire. Well, maybe you are, but so I'm not a billionaire. I don't consider myself unlucky and, you know, unfortunate, whatever the (laughs) term is. No, no. I, I, I know you, it's a great, that's a great <laughs> word. My, my, I would have few regrets if, if the day ended, uh, my life ended now in regards to my family. And I've had those thoughts. If I did yeah, have a yeah. billion dollars in the bank at th- so many moments, I, I don't know how I could increase the joy of this moment. Um, yeah. I mean, you can only have so many surfboards, all right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. You know, and another key thread through it that you came to, and I don't know if you use this, I think you did use the word, was just integrity. Uh, yeah. And that is, yeah, it's a thread. It's been a thread through everything you've done. And through the book, you come back to that of, I think you, uh, multiple times you talk about just doing the right thing. And our mm-hmm. folks here, the Ziegler audience, they know from Zig, he talks about that so much, having integrity, doing the right thing. But that is you see, I, I, you, I, you feel like an ambassador for that, honestly. Not that there aren't other people that I know, but you espouse it and uh, seem to thrive off of that. Well, I mean, I don't espouse it in order to thrive. Uh, a lot of it was my upbringing. My, my, just, my mm-hmm. father and mother just pounded that into me. Um, I, I also, I don't know, just probably by luck, I have just a high sense of right and wrong. Yeah. Um, and I, I also, I, I know this is maybe blasphemous, certainly maybe theologically ignorant, that, listen, I believe in God, and I know that most scholars would say this is not how it works, but just in case it does work like this, um, you don't want to screw up. So, so, you know, the theory is you accept God in your life and all sins are forgiven and bada bing, bada bang, you know, eternal life. But what if that theory is wrong? What if you do pay for your sins on earth? Man, it's like, that's a high risk proposition. So why not not take a chance and be a good person? Um, I, I got that given to me by, <laughs> by my own father. It's Pascal's wager. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I... I, yeah. I I agree. I've talked about that with, with my kids and, um, I have, I would have to say that I, I authentically have a fear of God and that sounds yeah. bad. Cause you're right. You get into some doctrinal junk with that and it's not a, a fear and I'm going to do the wrong thing and lose my salvation. But, uh, I mean, there's some mighty stuff out there in this creation. And <laughs> well, and I, and I also think that, you know, it is the cop out to say, well, if you accept God, all is forgiven. So in other words, you can be a criminal, racist, misogynist, you know, whatever, fascist, all that for your whole life. And then boom, you accept God and life is good for eternity. Uh, That that just doesn't make sense to me. We're we're getting into deep water here. Okay. Okay. I'll I'll hit you with the one that gets on me is, is the free will aspect. And you know, the once saved, always saved. I think that takes away my free will. You mean, I can't go to the dark side and denounce my faith and, uh, and and then, then I'm, uh, it takes away my free will. That doesn't make sense to me either. It takes away the whole point. 
I must say, I have not given that thought. <laughs> okay, well, that was not. <laughs> so, uh, we're deviating. We're going down rabbit holes here. Yeah, uh, you, you, you let me know how that works out. I'll let you know. I'll let you know. Um, <laughs> well, since we're in murky water, anyways, you know, we're we're in this era of of political correctness, and yeah. you know, everyone's offended. And uh, the story I told this story, I still I told this story today. I can't even remember yeah. the, if it was a, to a kid or, or an employee or what today, but the story of you trimming the bushes at your house <laughs> and a uh, white lady, middle-aged, wh- whatever, older white lady comes by and asks if you do lawns. And, yeah. and your response was what? Because uh, I'm Japanese, I you know, do lawns. <laughs> and your dad's response was, was, was brilliant, which is why yeah. he put it. But well, let's tell that because so, our listeners haven't okay. heard it unless they got the book. So, so yeah, so this uh, yeah. older white woman asked, me if I do lawns because I was trimming my hedges in San Francisco and at the time I was living in a very nice part of San Francisco where Union Street dead ends into the Presidio in Cow Hollow and uh, so I you know I I say is it because I'm Japanese she says no you know whatever right but it really was mm-hmm. <laughs> and so a couple of weeks later I see my father and my father is second generation I'm third generation and he served in the US Army all that kind of stuff so I fully expect him to just go off, right? Like, how dare this white woman say this? You went to Stanford. You work for Apple. You've written all these books. You're not a yard man. And, and to my utter amazement, he says to me, you know, son, where you live in San Francisco, a Japanese man cutting the hedge, most likely you were the yard man. So get over it. <laughs> That's stout. And, and I just, and that's the day I said, you know what? You just, yeah, you, 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 you know, it's taught me a lot of lessons. Like take the high road, give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Don't get easily offended, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, this is a very valuable lesson. It was. And, and I can't believe I didn't remember where I just talked about that. I just talked about it before this. I just recorded, this is show Seven Eleven. I just recorded show Seven Ten with Tom yeah. Ziegler. He co-hosted with me and we were talking about yeah. emotional health. And he talked about that kind of this offended culture that we're in. And I told that story. So that was an hour ago. I just, I just missed it because it was, it was so brilliant. And and I hesitate to say that I'm a a six foot white American man. I'm the least marginalized person on the planet, but um, still that, I mean, we can all have a a place to be a victim, to be offended. And that was a brilliant answer. Well, listen, don't, don't get me wrong. There are people who are victims, right? Sure, sure. If, if you if your family is separated from you and put in cages, you are a victim. There's no question about that. But I think the lesson that I learned from my father and also from Condoleezza Rice is that once you start believing you're a victim, you become a victim. Yeah. Right. So even if you are a victim, it's easy for me to say. All right. Because, you know, what was I a victim of? A white lady asking me if I'm a gardener, you right. know, that on the scale of. On the scale of victimization, yeah. that's pretty much near zero. So there are true victims, but I think you know once you believe that I'm a victim, you start accepting that you are not in control of your own life, that you are a victim, you are angry, you know you have to get revenge, et cetera, et cetera, um, which is just a downward spiral. Yeah. Well, again, it just which it makes your. Uh 
I granted, granted, but still having that ability to rise <laughs> above it is, is dramatic, you know, on selling. And, and again, we talked about that in the show I did with you a year and a half ago, but you talk yeah. about that again in the book, you cite just your immense gratitude for learning sales and the value you put on earning people's trust. And, you know, as far as character qualities for, uh, you know, yeah, go back to like one of your, your commencement speeches on character qualities of being able to sell, and earning trust, how high would you rank it for everybody? Well, you know, right up there. I, I think in life, everybody is selling. You're always selling. It, it, you may not think of yourself as selling, but uh, when you go to the airport and you ask for an aisle seat, you are selling, you know. <laughs> and when you are applying for a job, certainly you're selling. So uh, selling has gotten, you know, sort of a bad reputation yeah. because it's all about, you know, hucksterism and all that. Well, of course, I'm preaching to the choir talking to you, but selling is a necessary life skill. I mean, yeah. it's, I don't know why people think it's a negative. It's, <laughs> I, I have, I have, I don't know how you survive without selling. I don't either. I have, I've had my kids for years as they go through the, the, the age, uh, the, the, a younger age, sell at the local farmer's market. And they sold, yeah. sold, you know, home roasted coffee and different wood stuff that yep. we do and gourmet rice crisp retreats, whatever. And however much money they make is great, but it's the aspect of looking somebody in the eye and learning how to take the, you know, take the question, take the negative, yep. take the positive has been life altering for them. It's, yep. it's, and again, my dad gave it to me as well. I mean, overall, the book again, I was enamored with it. It's so interesting because it's story, just as you talked about. And you have, and folks, if you haven't seen it yet, the book, he ends each segment with these bullet points of wisdom that, again, are just so palatable. It really came across, I mean, Zig's not only his most famous quote, but really his personal credo. You can have everything in life you want if you'll help enough other people get what they want. I mean, you walked that out. You worked for people who weren't even paying for you, paying you, and you reaped so many rewards. You know, that is such a brilliant insight. Because 99% of the world believes that you can get everything you want if you go and grab it or yeah. if you get it from somebody else or it's a zero-sum game. So their gain is their loss. Their gain is your loss, right? And my experience is it's quite the opposite, that the rising tide floats all boats. And um, I think the more you help people, the more you get. It's, it's quite the contrary. And the people who have this sort of zero sum game mentality that you know in order for me to win you have to lose they're doomed to a life of unhappiness yeah well you outline it well in the stories that you've given us in here and i'm uh i am expecting that this is not a capstone uh that we'll have reason to have you on the show again with the next (laughs) book or the next uh endeavor uh so grateful that you uh accidentally butt dialed me and came back (laughs) to spend some time with us again guy thank you and thanks for putting the book yeah i have a question for you yeah and you can cut this out but i have a question for you because i respect your marketing and you know selling prowess so i decided i may be the last person in the world but i've decided i'm going to have a podcast and this podcast will interview influential people people who made a difference i will also conduct some of my own sort of how to make a presentation etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know it's the guy kawasaki podcast yeah so uh a very logical thing to call it is wise guy of course right 
But let me bounce another idea, which I am leaning towards doing, unless enough people tell me I'm crazy. Okay? So I want to call the podcast Duh. D-U-H. Duh. And, and my thinking is that, you know, I think there's so many people who are sick of political correctness and lying and, you know, false news and all this kind of stuff that, that someone will just tell it like it is. And, you know, this is what should be in your presentation. And uh, uh, MMR does not cause autism. And if you're a beginner, you need a longer board. Duh. So I just, it's going to be filled with duh-isms. And so... What do you think of calling my podcast duh? I think it has I'm, – <laughs> I'm thinking. I'm thinking on this. I think – I mean, okay, in, in truth, my first answer is yeah. your guy Kawasaki. People are going to yeah. listen to it. Uh, people are going to okay. listen to it. People like me are going to refer to it. You're going to get a truckload of people there regardless okay. of what you call it. So then I I would want your name on the – I would want – duh, with guy Kawasaki. I mean, yeah. your name's got to yes. be there. Yeah. I would be prone to – agree or to advocate that if it falls in line with the spirit of how you're going to be, your voice is going to be in that. And if that's the spirit that you feel, oh, yeah. uh, then I, I think it's, it's, it's good alignment. Okay. Um, honestly, I do. And I'm, I'm, I'm opinionated with the podcast because I've become a student of it. Cause it's just such a weird phenomenon. Yeah. And it's so funny. You say that I literally al- almost had as a question to ask you about that, but I thought it's just such a basic question, but you seem such a great personality. I know everybody who's anybody's trying to come into podcast, but not everybody's good at it. You're such a great conversationalist. You're <laughs> thank you. Well, you, you're always smiling. You make everybody else smile. And I think, uh, again, going along with the book, just these anecdot- anecdotal and conversations. I mean, we're definitely seeing an era when I think people are getting tired of just a straight interview. So, yeah. guy, chapter what, which I, you know, right, I, right. I I have to watch myself to do to, but to have a real conversation and just talk about stuff. Duh, it's funny. <laughs> it, no, it's probably it probably is fitting. Run it by some other people, okay. but I would probably say, as okay. opposed to wise guy, would be. I'd be easy. Would it stand out? Yeah, yeah. People are going to say, what show do you listen to? The Dush. That sounds a little funny. The Dush. (laughs) Guy Kawasaki show. Duh duh, with Guy Kawasaki. I don't don't know. But I like it if it's the flavor. I really do. I I I promise you that'll be the flavor. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you. Your authentic voice will be awesome. Uh, I'll I'll subscribe. I I only have one voice, Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and it's an authentic one, but that's... It's, it's not, it's a little rare. I think these days to, well, duh. Uh, duh. there you go. See, there you go. Okay. We just coined it. I, I want to be one of the first, you let us know and, and we'll, t- we'll tell everybody about that show and drive everybody. Maybe, there. maybe, maybe I should, you know, you'll run this, this interview way before me. So give it back to me. I'll run it as one of my podcasts. How's okay. That? Deal. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I'd, I'd be, okay. I'd be incredibly honored. I'd be incredibly honored. Uh, a great idea. Okay. That's so great. I, hey, please do a podcast. Um, okay. Yeah, there's so many coming out. I think some people are, you know, ah, there's too many coming out, but it's That's people true. are so hungry for authentic, uh, just authentic you know, conversation. You know, I, I look at podcasting as the new book, that it's yeah. so hard to get books established and written and all that, but podcasting. And I also think that um, 99.999% of people who are starting a podcast they're doing it to establish their brand, to make themselves thought leaders, 
to increase their speaking and consulting and all that, that none of that is my motivation. My motivation is to educate and to have fun and, you know, just let it rip at this point. So. Well, and it's an ongoing book. I have a good friend who I'm trying to get to write a book, and he's so stuck with when you write it, it's there. It's set in stone. And he yeah. says, you know, it's, it's not – it doesn't morph and grow and organic. In the podcast, you get to do that. You get to – Yeah. Every, it's got to be easier to sell advertising for a podcast to score a big advance. So there's like a lot of advantages. So uh, That's we'll another see. story. The, the, <laughs> the advertising that's coming over into podcasting is yeah. – is ridiculous. It's it's a phenomenon to me. Yeah, uh, it is. All right. Well, hey, there All you right, go. So there's Kevin, the announce. There's the announcement, guy. Okay. Thank I'm you. gonna go surfing now. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Bye. Thanks. Take care. Well, friends, there is truly wise counsel from the wise guy himself, Guy Kawasaki. And again, I really encourage you to get this book. I think you'll be highly entertained as I was. But again, just found myself wanting to underline all of these points he would put after these short stories of wisdom gained. Uh, So again, wise guy, you can get it wherever you buy books. I'll fill you in on our next show after I share a great show sponsor with you. Coming up next in show 712, we have a direct title here, Find Your Motive or Abandon the Effort. So the question would be, are you, are you suffering from a desire you have, but you aren't making progress toward? Are you clear on why you want it? why you really want it. The truth is most people are not. Most of us often are not. Uh, We have a list of wants and desires that we think we should want and actually maybe do to a degree, but don't have a clear picture in mind of what the actual payoff is. Why are we doing this? If you press in to clarity on what and why you want something, you will either gain the clarity and, and get true motivation and go forward or realize maybe you don't want it enough, which is not always a bad thing, as you'll hear in this show. The idea for the premise here came from Hal Elrod, our guest in show 707, where we talked about his new book, Miracle Equation, which was a message geared toward helping people take action on the things that inspire them. Well, from this, I posted this question to the Ziegler listening audience. What is a desire you have that you are struggling to take action towards? And what do you think might help your motivation? We received responses from people who wanted to find a fitting career they believed in, make more money, write a book, pursue physical fitness. A surprising majority shared efforts towards side businesses and business ideas that they really wanted to pursue, but were feeling stalled out on or afraid to go forward in. So I asked Michelle Prince to join me and talk through these comments. And this show should be pretty convicting and freeing for everyone. Quite possibly both, I think. Uh, Till then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together. <music> 